It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. The odds of you dying broke are extraordinarily high. Making money is not about being smart. It's about not doing dumb things. Dumb things that virtually all of you are going to do. But if you wanna beat the odds and all but guarantee you'll die rich, there is a really simple formula to follow. The question is, will you be able to do it? I'm joined today by best-selling author Morgan Housel, and we're going to lay out the formula for wealth creation. The single biggest problem is figuring out what you want, what you're good at, what your risk tolerance is, and that's going to be a very unique answer for you. And I always cringe whenever there's any kind of financial content on TV or online or on YouTube where it says, you should do this. And I'm like, who are you talking to? Are you talking to a 17-year-old day trader? Are you talking to a 95-year-old widow? Are we going to pretend like those are the same people with the same goals? And a big part of this is I feel like a lot of financial debates when people are saying, you should do X. No, no, no. You should do Y. They're not actually disagreeing with each other. It's people with different goals and different time horizons talking over each other. And so, so much of the psychology of money is us being looking in the mirror and being introspective and just saying, who am I? What do I want? And what's the best path for me? And one of the most dangerous things that you can do is take your cues and get, from, get your advice from people who are playing a different game than you are. You have people who are chasing other people's dreams. And when it doesn't work, or if they get there, they realize they're not happy. It's like, yeah, because th that wasn't your game. That's not what you actually wanted to begin with. Really what every business is, is solving somebody's problem, figuring out a problem for someone else. That's a very, very basic way to describe a business. But you would be surprised how many businesses ignore that fundamental concept. And when they're making a product, <clears throat> when they're making a marketing plan, whatever, they're forgetting that part of it. What is a problem that somebody else has? And what can we do to fix that? One that really sticks out to me here that I wrote about a lot in the psychology of money is the math behind compounding mm. is not intuitive at all to most people. So all wealth comes from compounding, compound interest. That's very basic. But the math behind it always screws people up. I frame it this way. If I asked you, what is eight plus eight plus eight plus eight? You could, you could figure that out in five seconds. But if I said, what is eight times eight times eight times eight times eight? Your head, your head explodes. You can't figure it out. Like we're just not meant for compounding or a simple statistic like this. 99% of Warren Buffett's net worth, he's worth $100 billion. 99% of that came after his 60th birthday. It's bananas. was accumulated after his 60th birthday. That number doesn't, doesn't compute, doesn't make sense in people's heads because that's how compounding works. If he retired at age 60 when he was worth $1 billion, you would have never heard of him. The only reason he's successful and has gained so much wealth over time is because of how long he's been doing it for. It's because it's not just because he's a good investor. It's because he's been a good investor for 70 years. And that's where all the money comes from. So that too is so easy to overlook. Like people look at Warren Buffett and they say, how did he do it? 
How did he pick stocks? What is he looking for? How does he think about valuation and management teams? Those kind of things. And that's all important. But the secret is that he's been a good investor for 80 years. That's all of it. And most people don't have that kind of patience, whether they're an entrepreneur or just an individual investor. It's like, how can I make money fast? And if you try something new and it's not working out, you give it a month or maybe six months before you're like, this isn't working or I move on to something else. When all of the big fortunes over time, whether it's from an entrepreneur or an investor, have come from people who are doing roughly the same thing for an inordinate amount of time. And for most people in investing, if you're investing in the stock market, it's one way to get wealthy over time. The secret is that average returns sustained for an above average period of time will lead to magic. That's all you need to do. Everyone in the stock market is like, how can I earn the highest returns? What are the stocks I can own this year that are going to double? What are like, how can I earn, get money fast? And most of the time, that's not the strategy that you want. That's not what's going to earn you the most money over time. What's going to earn you the most money is how can I earn, what are the best returns that I can sustain for the longest period of time? And if you can just be average for 20 or 30 years, you're going to end up in the top 2% of investors over time. There's uh, a quote that you said, it goes like this, in finance, spending less than you make, saving the difference and being patient is maybe 90% of what you need to know to do well. So if it really is that basic, and I've had people on the show that say very similar things, yeah. and yet I mean it when I say that the vast majority of the people listening to the sound of my voice right now are going to die broke. Yeah. So what is it in our minds that trip us up? Why can't people do that? I think for, well, first, there's a lot of societal pressures pushing you away from that. There's a huge societal pressure that you're not rich enough. And even if you have money, you need to spend more of it. Your, your house isn't big enough. Your car's not nice enough. Your clothes aren't flashy enough. So even when you get the money, holding on to it is a completely different thing. And my definition of wealth is the money that you have not spent yet. Mm. That's what it is. It's the house you didn't buy, the cars you didn't buy. That's what wealth is. So earning money to begin with is very difficult for some people. And for those who do, keep hold, like holding on to it is a whole nother set of problems that there's all these social pressures pushing you away from. When you frame it as earn money, save the difference, invest and be patient, it's very, very simple. But the social pressures, like the math is not difficult. The social pressures pushing you away from that are enormous. And then I think for even the people who understand that basic equation, it's too simple for them to take seriously. If you look at that and say, that's 90% of what you need to know, like, okay, but now let's get into the fun stuff. Let's start trading options. Like that's, that's what's intellectually stimulating for them. And so that's where their mind goes, even if that's, that's how you chop your fingers off in investing. So for some people, it's too simple. Health might be the same of like, eat a balanced diet, get some exercise and sleep eight hours. Okay. That might be 90% of what you need to know for it, but it's not exciting. It's not exciting for people. So they're not going to pay attention to it. A lot of what I write about in Same As Ever is that the best story wins. Mm. Not the best idea, not the right idea, not the accurate idea, not the best answer. The best story that gets people to nod their heads is what's going to win. In every endeavor in life, business, politics, money, investing, when you tell a story and people sit up in their seats and they're like, oh, I like that, that sounds good, that's the person who wins. That's who gets people's attention. And so in investing, even if what you need to know is very basic, the people who are telling a better story and a more exciting story, those are who are going to get the followers. And that's where all the attention is going to go to. 
Okay, so how do we combat that? If you've seen uh, or read, I guess, not seen, uh, I think it was in the Odyssey where the guy wants to hear the sounds of the sirens. So he says, strap me to the mast right. so that I can't go anywhere. And all of you put wax in your ears so you can't hear anything. And then I'll be able to hear you know, the, the song that calls men to crash upon the shore. What is the thing that we can do that has that kind of effect so that we can know what to do and actually do it? This is a little bit fatalistic, but I think there's a lot of people who won't be able to. And we, it, we're never going to live in a world in which everyone in society perfectly understands mm -hmm. how to make money and keep money and invest money. The reason that there is opportunity in investment markets is because most people are doing it wrong. That's who you're getting the opportunity from. If everyone did it right, there'd be no opportunity. Mm. So we're never going to live in a world in which we're like, we've solved the investing problem. Everybody gets it. In a way that we've sought, we've, you know, uh, eradicated malaria from the United States. Like we're, we're never going to get to a point where like we've eradicated bad financial behavior. It's never going to happen. So the truth is it's, it's just going to be very difficult. A lot of it is just the social pressures. I mean, think of a world where everyone tomorrow is twice as rich. Everyone just magically, there's no inflation, but everyone's net worth doubles tomorrow. In that world, your expectations would double overnight too, because you don't just want to be rich. You want to be richer than your neighbors. So as everyone else gets richer, their inflations go, their, their expectations inflate as well. And so even if everyone's making great decisions and saving money and getting wealthier, what you actually want is to be richer than other people. And so no matter, even if we're all making great decisions and becoming richer, we're still going to have that little bit of insecurity that's pushing us towards bad decisions. So that part, I think, is never gonna is never gonna change. I do think at the individual level, for the f some people who can take this to heart and put it in their own life, I think it's trying to figure out what your goals are, and that can be very different from the goals that society tells you that you want. And I think for most people, not everybody, but most people at their core, what they actually want from money is independence and autonomy. They, it's not that they want a big house and a flashy car and a private jet. They want to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever the hell I want today. Even if what they want to do is go to work, they don't want to be told by somebody else what to do. They don't want to have a boss or a banker telling them what to do and when to do it. They want to be independent and autonomous. And so if that's your goal, a lot of, a lot of doors open up in finance of like, that's my goal for money. I just want to be independent. I'm not that materialistic of a person. I just want to make sure that nobody's telling me what to do. I want to wake up and do everything on my own terms. I think a lot of people are like that. But then the goal is like, okay, I want to build up a net worth that allows me to do that. Enough money so that I'm not beholden to other people's whims. And one way to think about it is that every dollar of savings that you have is a piece of your future that you own. It's a claim check on your time in the future. And you can flip that around and say every dollar of debt that you have is a piece of your future that somebody else owns. It's a claim check that they have on your time and your work in the future. So viewing it like that, like just that fundamental goal of like, that's what I'm after. And most people haven't defined what they're actually after with money. It's this vague, just like, I wanna be rich. Well, why? And it seems like a dumb question because of like, oh, it seems great. But once you define why you actually wanna get there, and it might be different for everyone, then I think a lot of these strategies clarify. It's very interesting. All of that makes a lot of sense to me. The only thing I will push back on is I think the, I think it was Charlie Munger that said the world doesn't run on greed. It runs on envy. Yep. And so I will use that as a counter to, I don't, I agree that people want freedom, but I think it's a distant second subconsciously. They're not obviously being thoughtful about prioritizing it, but I think that comes a distant second to, 
what you said before, which is I want to dunk on my neighbors. Yeah. And so if you want a society to get violent and actually turn on itself and start literally shooting people in the streets, all you need to do is up the Gini coefficient. Yeah, so that totally agree. Totally when, agree. And for people that don't know that phrase, the Gini coefficient is not absolute wealth. It's the differential in wealth between the rich and the poor. It's wealth inequality. Exactly. And so I think about this in American terms, uh, even correlated to what I've heard you say, which is uh, in the 1950s, things were way worse than they are now. Yep. But just just on like objective, every objective measure you Income, can life think. expectancy, the average size of the house, the average median American adjusted for inflation is way better today than they were in the 50s. Except for one number, and that's- Expectations. That based on how wealthy some people are- You could use the Gini people. coefficient to exactly. measure that. You know, in the 1950s, for a lot of various reasons, there was not a lot of wealth inequality. The gap between rich and poor was much lower than it was before or since. Mm. A lot of that was just like an echo from World War II of how companies were managed. And the top marginal tax rate was 91% back in the 1950s. So you, you didn't have CEOs making $30 million a year. There were no athletes making $30 million. And there were no billionaire hedge fund managers. It just didn't exist. And so in the 50s, most people looked at their neighbors and their coworkers and everyone else in their town and said, relative to that person, I'm doing pretty well. And so even if their incomes were lower than they are today, and they're living in a smaller house and driving shittier cars and going on worse vacations, they felt great because relative to everybody else around them, they were doing pretty well. And I think what has happened over the last 80 years is that on average, our incomes have gone up, our net worths have gone up, our life expectancy has gone up, but so have everybody else's. And so our, our expectations have gone up by even more. So I think there's a lot of people for whom their income has doubled, but their expectations have tripled yeah. and they feel like they're worse off. Recipe and that's, that's a formula misery. that it's an absolute recipe for misery. You can imagine a world in which our grandkids are earning twice as much as us and have way better medical technology. They've eradicated disease. They live in global peace and they're no happier for it because their expectations go up. And you can say that because the world that you and I live in today is indistinguishable from magic. 100 years ago. If someone 100 years ago could see today's world with something as simple as antibiotics, they, they wouldn't know what to, what to make of it. It would just look like pure utopia. But are we actually happier for it today? How, like, how many times do you wake up grateful for antibiotics? It just becomes something that you expect and you're not grateful for it. And everyone's like that. I'm like that. Everyone's like that. Like It takes about two seconds for a new luxury innovation to become a baseline necessity. And so we can sit here today and dream about eradicating cancer and AI and all these things that are like so fun to dream about and would be great things for society. And if we're lucky enough to have them, we'll get used to them in two seconds. And so that's a big problem with money. It's just like, if your expectations grow with your prosperity, you're never going to be happy. There's this great quote from the philosopher Montesquieu. He said this 300 years ago. He said, if you just want to be happy, that's very easy to do but people want to be happier than other people. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And one of the reasons he said is because we think that other people are happier than they actually are. He said that 300 years ago, but now think what his social media has done to that. Where now when we're judging other people's prosperity and happiness, and you go on Instagram and look, it's all fake. It's all a curated highlight reel. Mm. Nobody posts on Instagram the vacation photo of their kids crying or fighting with their spouse. It's all the curated highlights, if not airbrushed highlights. And that inflates everybody else's expectations when they grow, go on and they say, Why, how come I'm not as beautiful, rich, and happy as they are? Yeah. 
And so that's, we, we live in a world which like Montesquieu said that 300 years ago, if he saw today's world, he, I think he would double down on that by an order of magnitude. Yeah. I'd just be like, yeah, this is exactly what I know to be true about humanity. It's always and, been true. It's just so much worse now. Yeah. This is what I worry about when I think about, um, how people avoid the trap of dying broke, how they can get the freedom that they want. It to your point, isn't so much about money. Money is gonna be a huge part of the equation. I don't wanna lie. And as I always tell people, money's more powerful than they think. It's just different than they think. Yeah. Um, but the thing I want people to understand is what is gonna stop you from generating wealth is your own mind. Um, it's funny because if I want to have a clip or something that I do go, not necessarily viral, but do very well, all I need to do is yell at people and be a drill sergeant. That's mm -hmm. what people want me to be. And the reason is they want me to intoxicate them with certainty. They want me to tell them precisely mm -hmm. what to do, how to behave, to stop doing that, to do this. The bad news is the only thing that I have that level of aggression and certainty around is that people shouldn't be so certain. Like that, I will I so stand up and scream yeah. and be like, hey, listen, if you trust yourself, if you believe your emotions, if you think that you've got the right answer and it's never going to be questioned, you're going to get hit by a freight train, a hundred percent. And you yeah. have got to cultivate like a deep sense of distrust in your emotions. Particularly, and if someone says, here's the secret to getting rich, here's the path to getting rich, just follow these three steps. That's what people want to hear that sense of certainty. Just tell me how to do it. Tell me the formula. Mm. The truth is there's no formula. It's it, there, there are mindset ideas or psychological ideas, but everyone wants the drill sergeant. This is to tell them exactly what to do and how to do it because that's, that seems like the easier path when a lot of like one of the best selling books of all time in finance is, is Napoleon Hill's think and grow rich. Oh my God, that book changed my life. It's a great, it's a great book. And one of the th the keys of it is like, you have to envision and imagine the success that you're going to have in order to get there. It's a very vague and nebulous point, but I think that that's the point is like if the secret to wealth is like this very vague and nebulous thing. It's not do this, do that. And step three, you're rich. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Here's what I took away from think and grow rich. And this, that book, I remember where I was it's written in I like the 1920s. It. Yeah. Very, very old ago. book. Yeah. He was, I assume uh, he was interviewing effectively the robber barons of the day, like yeah. going around, like who are the people that have just amassed all this wealth? And I was on a plane, I was broke, broke at the time and flying to see my wife in, uh, who is now my wife, then my girlfriend to England and all the stops you can imagine to get the cheapest ticket possible. Um, and he says in the book, like, hey, I've given you the secret on every page of this book, but it's still not sinking into you. Yeah. And I'm like, what? I was like, what has he said on every page of the book? And then I was like, oh, if I believe I can, I can. You can do it, right. But if I believe I can't, then I won't. Right. And I was like, oh my God, that that thing in that book changed my it, life. In fact, before we started rolling, I said to you, I have this saying I call the only belief that matters, yeah. which is that if you put time and energy into getting better at something, you will actually get better at that thing. Yeah. It wasn't directly from him, but it was a combination of him and Carol Dweck who wrote the book Mindset that made me realize, oh my God, Look, as somebody who's built businesses, I will just tell you, you cannot wish your way to success. Right. But if you don't believe it's possible, then you won't do the things you need to do to get good at the skills that you need to get good at in yeah. order to generate wealth or whatever it is you're I think whether it's an entrepreneur or an investor or a politician or an athlete, a common denominator that they have is just like this 
incredible belief in their own skills that they can do it no matter how hard it's going to get that they can do it themselves that they can eventually get there this like in, like ridiculous confidence in their own ability to get shit done is a common denominator you're going to see a lot of those people but back to like napoleon hill that's the idea of like, if you believe in it, you can do it. And if you don't believe in yourself, you're not going to get that. That's very different than the drill sergeant saying, do X, Y, and Z. And then step three is wealth. Because I think what Napoleon Hill told you was the truth of like, like let's leave aside the actual like technical idea of like, believe in yourself and you can get it done. There, there is no formula for getting it done. Believe in yourself is a vague nebulous concept, but everyone out there wants the hack. Everyone else wants the shortcut of he like follow these three steps, follow this simple trading algorithm and you'll get rich tomorrow. But we and can it, give them never that. This is what drives me crazy. You've already given it to them. Spend less than you make, invest what you save and give it a long time. But, so it becomes what you said earlier about, but your mind is going to fuck with you. Yes. You won't like that. It's not complex. You're going to be drawn to these very like difficult things. And there's... Uh, do you have anything to say to that? Because there's, I'm going to move us on to like this other thing that you said in your book that I was like, I totally disagree with this. Oh, good. I, that's this is this is what this is what I like talking about the most. The only thing I'd say is the idea of spend less than you make and save the difference is is much easier said than done. So as a formula but that you can it, put into is practice, it not it's going to work 100 of the time over the last hundred years anyway. We, no one can predict the future, but over the last whatever 120 years, yeah, that would work every time. Yeah, it's just that most people won't do it because it's harder than it is to say. Okay, so then before we move to the next thing, which I will take a note to make sure I don't forget, but uh, why? Why is it harder? I so think it's cultural, you're gonna be, Instagram's gonna push you to spend more money, got it. Yep. Envy is going to push you to spend more money and to pursue more money and to constantly move the goalposts, okay. Yeah. Is there anything else or is it literally master those two things and you're golden? The last point I'd bring up, and I don't know if I agree with this 100%, but I thought it was it was profound when he said it. There's a Charlie Munger quote where he says, when teaching financial skills to young people, they either get it instantly or never at all. And I think what he's saying is like on the nature nurture spectrum, some people are just not wired to get it. And some people are are very naturally wired to get it instantly. I've often thought before I heard Munger say that, I've often thought 10% of people don't need any help with their money. They naturally understand it. It just makes sense to them. Compound interest makes sense. It's into it's intuition. Another ten percent cannot be helped. They're compulsive gamblers. Mm. No matter what you tell them, they're they're always just going to be making terrible financial decisions. I think that's that's roughly right. So there's always going to be a subset of the population for whom, no matter what you tell them or what information you give them, it's it's never going to click. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your 
full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're going to have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, dot com slash impact theory. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. If that, okay, so the gambling thing, that wipes out 10%, but that would mean 80% you have a shot and I don't buy it. I think that there is a, mm, given that the answer is so simple, in fact, let me make this about the body for a second. I can tell you exactly how to get six-pack abs. It won't work some of the time. It will work all of the time mm-hmm. to a person. I don't care what disease you have, literally nothing. It will work every time. If you let me control what that person eats, I will get them to, now they might have weak ass six-pack abs because they're not doing sit-ups, yeah. but you're going to get them. This is a question of how much body fat are you storing? And if I remove enough calories from your diet, people are going to hate this, but this is fucking true. If I remove enough calories from your diet, you are going to lose fat. That that is just a fact of nature. There is no way around it. There's nothing you can do to stall it out. If you let me completely control your calories, I will control your body fat. It will be different for different people, but it will work a hundred percent of the time. And so the question becomes then why is everybody fat? And they are fat because they don't care enough. They have not built the discipline. And I hate that this one is true. They may not meet minimum requirements intellectually, that just there is a sad reality to be faced that there is a point at which you drop below the requisite IQ and you're never going to make it. Yep. Uh, they are awash in bad ideas, which is where I focus. I am entirely obsessed with, I think the vast majority of people can make the change, but they're they going to have to get rid of their bad ideas 
and supplant them with effective ideas. I'm not even going to pass moral judgment on. I'm not even going to call them good ideas. I'm just going to say there are ideas that work yeah. and there are ideas that don't work. And how do you know whether you're pursuing an idea that works or not? You're getting the result that you want or you're not getting the result that you want. Now, yeah. we can go into a whole thing about if you don't know what your goal is, of course you're going to fail, which you mentioned earlier. And a huge swath of humanity has no idea what their goal is. Yeah. And so they are not going to be able to get to it just because they've never taken the time to articulate it. But okay, all of this was a response to you saying that there's this huge percentage in the middle, 80%, that doesn't fall into either of those two categories. Wants and needs good advice. Yeah. So I will say, I still think the vast majority of them are going to fail. And I think the vast majority of them that want and need good advice are probably not getting good advice. The huge majority of the financial services industry, by the way, are by and large good, honest, well-meaning people. The incentives of, of the system are to push people away from the best financial behavior. Because if you are a stockbroker, if you are a fund manager, you're not gonna make a career, you're not gonna make your money telling people to buy index funds and go to the beach. You want mm -hmm. them trading, you want them churning in and out. That's how you, as a broker, as a fund manager, are gonna make your money. Okay. And then so, so much of the industry is pushing people towards the worst thing that they need to do because the incentives to do it are huge. And in finance, if you have a business model where you're taking 1% as your fee, 1% on trillions of dollars across the industry is a shitload of money. So the incentive to push people towards doing things that they shouldn't be doing is off the charts. And that's a huge part of this too. I mean, it might be similar yes. in health where it's like the incentive of the food companies is to make food that is good, tastes good and is addictive. It's not to give you healthy food. They, they couldn't care less. And I think by and large, they're good, honest, well-meaning people. But the incentives are to push you away from what you should be doing. I'm in a weird mood today. So I'm going to say, <laughs> okay, look, as somebody who made my wealth in food, yeah. trust me, there are amazing people out there. And I am I have a lot of respect for myself because I cost myself hundreds of millions of dollars doing the right thing that I knew was like, oh, this isn't going to be as popular. But it's going to have the right metabolic effect. But I will say there are a lot of people that are probably dirtbags. I'm not saying I met them. I'm right. just saying when you look at, oh God, in fact, this is from your book. Uh, a I, dirt bag. No, no, no. You, you're going to remember this in a second. Uh, I think this is really smart. I summarized it as, um, oh God, circumstances make the monster. Yeah. But it's actually from the Russian poet. The Russian poet. That you quoted. God, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, he, he, he has a crazy name. Yes. But basically what, what he says is you can turn anyone into a monster in two weeks. Correct. And he was, he was saying, he was talking about it in terms of people who went to the gulag and people who were good, honest, noble, smart, wise, caring, calm, peaceful people. Two weeks in the gulag and they're monsters. Two weeks of starvation, isolation, torture, whatever it would be, and you're a monster. That'll do it. And you and I would do that too. Oh, Every, yeah. Everybody would. I, I imagine the most myself well meaning as the person, person who becomes bad. There's no question. But and in two weeks of starvation or torture or whatever it might be, isolation, at what point are you willing to you know, start attacking people for your basic needs kind of thing? That was that was his point. And because sure. of that, we underestimate what society is capable of doing yes. in a bad way because everyone is calm and peaceful and by and large, well-meaning right now. It takes two weeks to turn that around. Yep. Yeah, that that is scary and I think very true. So going back to the the food industry, so given the perverted, in, perverted incentives, I have a feeling, even though they may be like, 
minus the bad incentives, amazing people. The incentives get hard to overcome. Yeah. And this is why I think so many people succumb. So uh, dear viewers, thank you for showing up because I care obsessively about one thing. I really, because I acknowledge the role of luck in my life, I am obsessed with trying to give people the ideas that I feel separate me from people that have not had my kind of success. I got the ideas at the right time. I had the right constitution to get very frustrated with the way that normal business was being done. And all of my success was sort of a accidentally timed rebellion against that, that ended up being just absolutely the right time for pure luck. Oh. So I am hell bent to give people the ideas that are gonna help them. So you are your own worst enemy. You are gonna create all the problems in your life. The reason that you know the right thing to do in both your body and in money, because we've told you them in this episode. So if you were hearing my voice now, unless you're skipping around randomly, you know what to do. Now, maybe you don't believe me. I guess we'll set that aside for a second. But assuming that people do embrace those ideas, I still think they're going to fail. And so I wanna dismantle what, what happens psychologically that leaves them to fail. Now, to do that though, I need to ask you first, do you think they can be changed? Or do you simply speak to the 10% that fall into the, they'll get it and do something? I think I'm speaking to the <clears throat> 50 to 80% who want and need good advice. Do I think everyone can change? No. Because I feel like if I, like my saying of spend less than you make, invest, be patient. I almost, to, to, to rag on my own idea, I almost view that as saying, if you get people to stop fighting, there'll be no more wars. You're like, yeah, no kidding, but it's not going to happen. Mm. And it's like, it's a, it's a, when you make it that simple, it highlights all that you need to do, but let's not pretend that that's going to be easy. And let's not pretend that anybody, that everybody can do it. I think that's, that's where I fall down. And to the point of same as ever, it's, it's always been like that bad financial behavior has always existed. And I think it will always exist because of the natural human emotions of envy and wanting to one up your neighbor and rising expectations. I think those have, there's such an innate part of human behavior and because those exist, it's never going to get to a point in society where everybody is making good financial decisions. Okay. Is, is, is a room to improve at a broad level. I mean, the fact that finance is almost ex not taught whatsoever in schools is absurd. You have to take, you have to take trigonometry, but not basic personal finance. Bro, so, so is there, is there room to improve the masses? Absolutely. And even at that level, when the masses start getting a lot of financial education, what has been most young people's, uh, introduction to finance in the last couple of years, it's Robinhood, which I'm, I'm sure that company too is run by good and honest people, but it's an, it's an app that's designed to get you to start gambling, not to invest for the long term, not to learn about businesses, to buy the stock that's going up between now and lunchtime is what they want you to do, which every financial study, every academic study would show that's the single worst way that you can invest. So even when you have a new product that's getting people into the game, by and large, because of the incentives of the game, it's not pushing you to do the right thing. Yeah, agreed. Um, here's something that I say frequently that really drives people crazy, but I'm gonna say it anyway, because um, I speak to the 2% of people that I know can and will change. Yeah. Uh, just to throw another number out that I have completely made up. It, it is, while I think the vast majority of people that listen to the show are in the 2%, I think that the world at large breaks into roughly 98% if you're an adult. Got a whole thesis on kids. But if you're an adult, 90% of people are so stuck in the frame of reference, they're never gonna make a change. 2% will, they're hyper malleable and they're gonna figure this out. Okay, uh, the thing that I say that people hate is that 
I like my house to be chock full of terrible food, Oreos, ice cream, cakes, all of that, whatever, because I don't eat based on what's tasty and delicious. I don't eat based on what the industry is telling me I should want. I eat based on my goals. So I don't spend money based on what I'm excited about or this, that, and the other. I base what I spend my money on, on my goals. Now, I am a drunken sailor when it comes to investing in my business. So I wanna be very clear. Mm -hmm. I recognize I'm playing a very dangerous game in business. Fair enough, all the critiques in the world, I will take them on. Uh, but in terms of you, I advise people to have bright lines in their life. So the reason that I don't eat bad food when I shouldn't is because I have bright lines that I'll eat anything I want on a Saturday. Yeah. But if today's a Tuesday and it is, then I know that I can't have Oreos and cupcakes and cookie and whatever. But do you think you have an abnormal amount of willpower that 99% of people don't no. in that situation? Can I tell you a story? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Uh, when I leave for college, my mother basically pushes me out the door mm -hmm. and I am weak and fragile. And I'm like, I don't think I want to leave. I want to stay here, go to the same school my friends are going to, play it safe. And my mom is like, over my dead body, you said you were going to go to USC. You were going to USC. You mm -hmm. were going to chase your dreams and you're going to make them all come true. Then I actually go to USC and my mom spends every day after that trying to get me to move back home. Mm -hmm. And so one day, finally, this was like maybe 10 years ago. I'm like, mom, I have to ask, you pushed me out of the house. If you hadn't, I would have just stayed at home. So why push me out if you're going to work so hard just to try to get me back without missing a beat, Morgan? She says, oh, I just always assumed you were going to fail and come home. Wow. And I was like, whoa. Now by it's this a good point- thing I'm, she didn't tell you that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. My mom yeah. was always my biggest cheerleader. She's amazing. But I was like, wowza, she was so nonchalant. Oh yeah, I just assumed you were gonna fail. Wow. Now I asked my best friend, what did you think of me when I was in high school? He goes, uh, I just assumed you were gonna marshmallow your way through life. Wow. He was like, you were so lazy. And then my now father-in-law, when I went to ask for his blessing to marry his daughter, he said, no. Wow. He was wow. like, bro. I mean, obviously he didn't say bro, uh, but he was like, I don't think one. you're gonna be able to provide for my daughter. And at the time he was right. Now, the thing I want people to understand, all of those people accurately identified where I was in my life at that time. Yeah. I was profoundly lazy. I did whatever came easily. I ran from anything that challenged me. I've, I had a fixed mindset. So I was trying to put myself in the rooms where I was the smartest person. And the second I hit somebody smarter than me, I would turn and run in the opposite direction. This is why my obsession with the only belief that matters. I didn't think I could get better. And so yeah. my whole life was an echo of, I don't think I can get better. So I'm just trying to position myself to look cool now in the moment. Yeah. I'm not willing to put my head down for 10 years and get good at something and outperform people. So everybody that was like, oh, bro, this guy is headed for a disaster, had accurately identified where I was at that moment in my life. Yeah. Now, what they underestimated was the power of shame and my desire to impress yep. my wife enough to sleep with her. That's right. So, right. And so then my wife also was very good, people are not going to like this word, with love in her heart and all the best intentions and it worked out great. I couldn't be more grateful, but she was very good at manipulating me. Mm -hmm. So it was like when she saw me being lazy, cause she thought the way she was going to affect the world was not directly herself. It was going to be through me. Yeah. Okay. We, we came of age in a different time, boys and girls. Yeah. So my wife who is now an entrepreneur always thought she was going to be a mother and that was going to be her whole thing. So she just thought yeah, subconsciously, she probably wasn't even thinking about it, but I'll manipulate him. 
she didn't use that word, but I'll influence him and he'll go do the magical things that I know he will become capable of doing. Yeah. And I ended up by reading things like Napoleon Hill, uh, on and on and on. I ended up cobbling together this mindset that allowed me to be successful. So I don't want people to discount me and say, oh, he's exceptional. I could never do what he did because he's different. I'm built differently now, but I wasn't at the time. Yeah. And so anybody that writes off my story, you writing off my story puts you in the 98% because you're looking for reasons to stay where you're at yeah. instead of finding reasons to be like, oh word, I'm gonna do that. How can I do that? This is not your point, but I'm curious when I hear that story, how much of the rejection from your father-in-law or in those kind of stories motivated you to get better? And it was, it was what you needed. 100%. To get off the couch. Here, here is the honest answer. So earlier you said that one of the things that successful people have is just this unrelenting belief in themselves. Yeah. But I also think that they have an absolute terror inside that they're not good enough to oh, be successful. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is this weird dichotomy yeah. that was first crystallized voices. by Alex Hormozzi. Thank you, Alex, shout out. Uh, it's crazy. And it is so true of me. I've always had an insane belief that I was going to get rich. Now, that makes sense now because people know the punchline of my life. But dude, when I was a kid, nobody I knew was wealthy. Yeah. I never met a wealthy person, nothing. Yeah. My whole family used to make fun of me. Literally, they would mock me because I'm, not, I'm gonna be rich one day. They were like, get out of here. So that is, when I go to my father-in-law, I am broke. I have this vision. In fact, when I went to propose, I don't even think I had a job. So he's like, oh God, you're living in my ex-wife's house. You're, uh, you've gotten my daughter to fall for you, which is already horrifying on a hundred levels. And he had taken himself from a tiny village, not a town, a village mm -hmm. in the island of Cyprus, which I'd never even heard of until I met my wife. Uh, he'd taken himself from that to running one of the largest shipping companies in the world. Mm -hmm. Crazy journey. So this guy's looking at me like, oh my God, like this kid is going nowhere fast. I also don't blame him for thinking that. Nor do it's, I. It's easy to poke fun at him, but just knowing what I know now, it's 100%. like, I, I get why he would have said that. For sure. Yeah. So at the time I'm laying in bed in the morning for four to five hours. I only get out of bed because my girlfriend who's working to support us both to live in her mom's house, P.S., uh, she would come home at lunch and her one request that since I wasn't working, that I make her a sandwich. And I would get up in my pajamas and finally get out of bed after four-ish hours. And I would make her that sandwich, oftentimes like slapdash together because she was like walking in the door. And I was a wash in shame. Yeah. And I was like, I told her I'm gonna make her rich. I told her father, because I ended up proposing even though he said no. Yeah. And I was like, sir, I hear you. I respect that, but I do want to tell you, I'm going to propose to your daughter. So she says yes. And now I'm like, whoa, I'm really ashamed of myself yeah. and I need to make a change. But if I hadn't ever gotten ashamed, if I had never met somebody and made big promises and then knew I wasn't living up to them, I wouldn't have done it. And because it ends up taking me, unfortunately, the story of my life is not, oh my God, the next thing I do, I get rich. It's like almost 15 years. Of, between then oh god we're so poor my wife is clipping coupons we only have one car i'm bumming rides off my employees like it was crazy yeah uh so through all of that it was am i ever going to make it and i can't let my father-in-law be right now i want to be very clear 
nobody was ever kinder to me. He was, once he realized this is happening, whether I wanted to or not, he was warm, emotionally available, just a generous, generous human being. And I'm so grateful. Yeah. Um, and I did apologize to him because he, he gave me probably the best business advice I've ever received, but I rejected it at the time because I still had a fixed mindset. Yep. Uh, so anyway, yes, without getting slapped around in that way and being completely ashamed of myself, I never would have done it. I, I have a friend, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who says, if you had to describe in one word <clears throat> the mindset of the most successful entrepreneurs, the word that he would use is tortured. Is then they wake up every morning and they're like, they're terrified. They have this big goal that they need to meet. They have this audacious thing they're trying to accomplish and they're not there yet. So you would think it's not driven. It's not passionate. It's tortured. Every it's day they wake up tortured. Accurate. And I think a lot of people in their life will get to that rock bottom moment. And that's, that's what they need. The opposite of this, the polar opposite of that are the spoiled kids who grew up with everything and they can wake up comfortable and under a warm blanket every single day. And that's the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations kind of idea of Explain like- Explain what that means. You have someone who starts with nothing and they're tortured, they're terrified. They're they gonna be left behind. They can only afford a shirt sleeve, They can, they can't, they can't do it. They're, they're in shirt sleeves because they're a blue collar worker. Right. They're terrified. They make a lot of money. And then they have one generation who may be like, kind of can follow it up a little bit, kind of keep the family together a little bit. The grandchildren who are just the grandchildren of very rich people are the ones who develop a coke habit at 17 and never accomplish anything and blow all the money. And so there's a lot of families like this. <clears throat> you and I were talking earlier about the Vanderbilts, mm -hmm. which to me is one of the most interesting examples of the mega rich families because they had more money adjusted for inflation. They had almost half a trillion dollars back in the 1800s. And in three or four generations, it was all gone. And the three or four generations that inherited all the money, and they were all getting hundreds of billions of dollars during this period. And even if you were a cousin, you were getting the equivalent of five or $10 billion during this period. They were all miserable. They were all miserable. And I think a lot of the reason was none of them accomplished anything other than being born in the right name. They were not entrepreneurs themselves. They didn't build anything themselves. They didn't accomplish anything themselves other than spending their ancestors' money. And they were all miserable for it. And you need someone who's like, who can wake up terrified of their position in the world. And that's going to give them the drive to actually go out and build something themselves. And you and I were talking earlier, the first Vanderbilt heir who did not get any money is Anderson Cooper from CNN. And you know, his mother was Gloria Vanderbilt. She's the last one who got a trust fund. Anderson got nothing. And he talks about that that's probably why he's so successful. And he's probably the happiest Vanderbilt heir in 200 years because he was the first person who had to do it himself, who he knew when he woke up when he was 18 or 20 years old, he said, I have to make a name for myself. The fact that his last name is Cooper and it's not Vanderbilt means that he like, he had nothing going for him, no trust fund, no name. I'm sure he had connections and doors are open to him. But I think that's a telling thing too, of like, that's what drives people. It's not having endless resources. It's the opposite. It's waking up terrified. And a lot of entrepreneurs who keep it going are like this too. There's this great interview with Mike Moritz, who is the founder of Sequoia, which is mm. the most successful venture capital firm that's ever existed. And not only are they successful, but they've been successful for 40 years, which is a very long time in VC. So he's doing this interview with Charlie Rose and Charlie Rose says, what's your secret to being this good for 40 years? And Mike Moritz says, we've always been scared of going out of business. And this is a guy who is like an order of magnitude more successful than anybody else. If there's anyone who has the right to brag and say, the reason I'm successful is because I'm so smart. It's Mike Moritz. 
but he doesn't. He says, I'm terrified of going out of business. And he said, we never assume that what we've accomplished in the past is going to transfer to, to tomorrow. So he's still waking up scared, terrified, tortured maybe. And that's why he can keep his success going for such a long period of time. And there's such a long history of people using their paranoia and insecurity to become successful. And then as soon as they become successful, they allow themselves to take a break because they're like, I made it. I met the goal. I'm at the mountaintop. I don't need to be scared anymore. I was scared. Like the reason I was working so hard is so I didn't have to be scared anymore. So then as soon as that fear goes away and they become comfortable with their success, it's all over. And what made them successful is gone. And then it starts to unwind. So many companies are like this, Sears, GM, JCPenney. The reason that they failed is because they got so successful. They just got fat, happy, and lazy. And you see that with individuals too. And when you see someone like Mike Moritz who pushes back against that, wildly successful. The guy is a decabillionaire and he's terrified of going out of business. That is such a rare and unique mindset. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Yes, it goes back to you need emotions to make a decision, but you really have to distrust your emotions. Yeah. And I find that people, it's ironic because most people are just absolutely devoid of self-esteem and all that, but somehow still manage to, once they get an idea in their head, they, they trust that emotion, not an idea. In fact, as I was saying those words, I was like, something doesn't feel right. They trust their emotions and they don't have a clear idea. And so this comes back to, okay, to me. So I really want to, I, if you and I disagree, I want to debate this until the end of time. Yeah. Uh, I think that the reason that most people won't be successful is they cannot control their emotions. Yeah, yeah. And what's gonna end up happening is they don't have a clear thesis on what they're investing against. They're going to, in the euphoria, when it's a bull market and everything's going great, they're gonna be like, this is gonna last forever. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna invest accordingly. And so they will buy at the top and then they're going to panic as the number drops because of the emotion, yep. they'll forget that they didn't have a thesis in the first place. They're just buying based on emotion, effectively gambling. And as it comes down, they're gonna sell at the bottom. And so what becomes the simplest and best advice in the world, buy low, sell high, they do the exact inverse Easier and they buy high and sell low. Right. 
but it's easier said than done for a very explainable reason. Your emotions will convince you that dots connect that don't connect. And so, and this is something, remember, everything I say, I'm saying to myself, man, I get it. I'm, I distrust myself more than anybody. So what I've seen happen to myself and to other people is that the emotions make it feel like you have a thesis. You're, oh my God, like this bull run. No, 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 this is amazing. So I went through, I I didn't know what euphoria in the market was until crypto. So I sort of build for 20 years, get wealthy, pick my head up and realize, oh, investing, never really thought much about it. Don't know anything about it. Let me go see what's up. Uh, more I start learning about money, the more I get into what's going on in crypto and I see the way that people are, but I don't know that it's called euphoria. And so I have bright lines. I go in with a thesis. I know not to trust myself. I know not to trust my emotions. There's only so much capital I'm going to deploy. And when I hit that number, I'm going to stop. And everybody was like, Hey, no, keep going. Bye, bye, bye. And I'm like, Nope, I am deployed. And so it is what, and I dollar cost averaged. Now, the one thing, if I were going to do it again, I would elongate my dollar cost averaging time span. So that, you know, I'm buying in over, let's say 10 years instead of two, but nonetheless, uh, had a number. Once I hit the number, cool, we're done. And also I was like, as long as my thesis remains intact, then I'm not going to sell no matter what happens to the price. And because I only invested what I could afford to lose, which would be my layman's tip number one, I drive by what's going to let me sleep through the night. That would be my layman's advice number two. Yep. And then um, I just keep going with my bright lines. This is how much I was willing to put in. If I hit that number, yes, leave. Okay. Uh, I plan to hold for like, basically put your head down for 10 years. Don't even look at it. Don't think about it. Has it been 10 years? No, then don't sell. Yeah. And so we'll see if like, and same thing I do in the stock market. So we'll see if any of this strategy works out, but that to me at least is, I have a thesis that is unemotional. I have it documented so that I can figure out, am I adhering to my thesis or not? Yep. Uh, bright lines, do this yes, totally based on emotion, or do this no, again, based on no emotion. Um, what's wrong with that strategy, if anything? <clears throat> Nothing, but when I tie all this together, when I hear about your diet and your entrepreneurship and how you invest, it seems like you have an abnormal, almost a freakish amount of self-control. Yes. Now the question becomes, was I born with it? Yeah. Or did I develop it? Yeah. No, I think I think if you ask me, I think of the nature and nurture spectrum. I'm, I'm making this number up. Yeah. I would think it's 80% nature. nature. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pulling that number out of thin air, yeah, but I think, I think that's probably right. And I think you see this in a lot of things. One of the things that's so interesting about Ozempic, the new drug, and I, I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about it, but the idea that it can also has in, in, in the early studies that have not been fully confirmed yet, that people who are taking it for weight loss also are able to kick their smoking habit, their alcohol, their alcoholism, their gambling habit. And from what I understand, it's manipulating a hormone in your pancreas that's doing this, that is influencing all kinds of things. That's how it gets you to stop eating so much. If you piece all that together, if that layman's description is accurate, what I just said, or the reason that people are alcoholics and gambling addicts is because they have an abnormal amount of a hormone in their pancreas that you and I don't. And like, if, if that, to the extent that that's the case, then yes, I think self-control can be something on the nature of church or spectrum can leave lean heavily towards 
nature. It's not to say that you can't learn to be better or learn the consequences of your actions or set up a system that's going to help you be a little bit more patient. But I think without a doubt, there are people who are born with more or less self-control. That is, we're in violent agreement on that. The thing that we're in disagreement on is science seems to show that you're 50% hardwired and 50% malleable. Yeah. And I'm certainly willing to say that, cool, I got a good hand on malleability is the one thing I think, ooh, I'm a, I am a hyper responder. So mm. not discipline, it's my ability to change that I think is unusual. Yeah, most and people so are very stubborn. Then it becomes, okay, if did I put in the time and energy to actually change? So my thing though is, if all of us are 50-50, then I would encourage people, because I'm gonna guess that everybody listening to this could put, they have not reached the max of their 50% malleability yet. Yep. I don't, almost certainly none of us ever will, unless you're doing something like uh, a sport, which requires physical exertion, your body will break down over time. There's no 80 year old in the NBA for a reason. Right. Um, so I do fully acknowledge that there are limitations, uh, but I, I don't think most people get to them, certainly not with an intellectual game. I think most people lose, uh, there's two things that I kill, I think kill success, boredom mm -hmm. and, um, emotional weakness. Like you you feel badly about yourself and so you wanna stop playing the game. Those yeah. are the two things that I think end up ruining most people. So since I don't think most people have hit their cap, I will just say, okay, cool. Let's assume that Tom's 50% that's hardwired is better than your 50%, fair enough. But when I look at Elon Musk, I think it's pretty clear that his 50% of being able to solve problems or whatever his engineering mind, I don't know, whatever it is. Yeah. The the idea of trying to run seven companies, I couldn't do it. So it's bonkers. Now yeah. I can whine about that or I can do the best with my limitations that I possibly can do. Do you think there are areas in your life where you have very little self-control? We've talked about the ones where you do. Is there anything where it's like you can't, you can't control that? I don't know this is what you mean, but this is the one thing that has really resisted my strongest efforts, and that is anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now, the biggest influence on my anxiety was diet. So I was able to go from generalized anxiety, I have a constant sense of impending doom, to, oh, okay, now if I'm doing something high stakes and I'll still get anxious and I have to go way out of my way to manage my psychology. Yeah. Um, and that does feel like sometimes I want to crawl inside my brain and find, is it my amygdala? What the fuck is it? Yeah. But something is really pissing me off because I don't feel like I should have to work this hard to um, maintain that sense of strength and confidence. And I think people look at me and think, oh, well, it's easy for him. And I'm like, Jesus, man, like very, from my perspective, other than verbal ability, which that I will say, I've always, ooh, any energy I put into that, I get a disproportionate return. Other than that, like with the possible exception of malleability, I feel like I'm what they in bodybuilding call a hard gainer. Yeah. Ev everything I do takes an inordinate amount of time and energy. Discipline. And I just outwork people. There's a new book by Robert Sapolsky, who's a very famous psychologist. Trying to get him on the show. And this, I think the, the thesis of his book is very controversial. So I'm not saying that this, is, this is the truth. His new book is that people don't have free will. Yeah, we don't. After studying people for 40 or 50 years, he's just saying, the things that you do, the things that you believe, you don't have any control of. They've been a consequence of what you've experienced in life and the DNA in which you were born with that makes you believe you do. And I, I have not read the book, so I don't want to cast too much judgment on it, but... 
there's part of me that wants to think like that's that's got to be it has to be 50 percent true i would say it's probably 80 percent true something like that don't we both agree it's 100 percent true i don't know without reading the book but the idea do you think we have free will uh, it depends how we're how we're defining it like the ability <clears throat> to uh, respond in any direction you want with total disregard for your biology and history. I mean, I guess if we're framing it like that, probably not. I mean, I would frame it as there's probably things that I would want to do tonight that I know I should not do. And therefore I'm not going to do. I'm sure doing heroin is a lot of fun. I'm not going to do it tonight because I know it's the wrong thing to do. So is that free will? No, that would be free won't. Okay. Which is actually a thing. No, no, yeah, that makes sense. So maybe we can get behind free won't. So this is very interesting. And I will say this, the odds that we have free will to me seem like 0%. Yeah. But you have to act as if you do. So every word out of my mouth is as if I believe in free will, because there's no other way to go through life. You have to act like that. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, what are you doing? Um, but... I can't fathom that you do. But what I'm saying is, despite the fact that I don't have free will, malleability is still a thing. And mm. you, you, you are lucky enough to now have encountered that idea. Yeah. Now get after it, right? So I think anybody that resigns themselves to free will as an illusion in practice becomes a nihilist. And I would very much recommend against that. So does Robert Sapolsky's idea push back against the idea of here's the formula you should do. Why aren't people doing this? Absolutely not. It, so this is, this is one of those. If we truly are just cosmic billiard balls, yeah. does it really matter? And my answer is no, because the only thing it means is that we're all going through the motions, that the percentages of people that can and cannot change are predetermined. But the only way for these billiard balls to play out is for you to respond to the things that you were met with. Yeah. And resigning yourself to, uh, I'm a billiard ball, I can't do anything, I'm never gonna be able to make change, does not make sense yeah. to me. Now, maybe that I'm just playing my role as the billiard ball, fair enough. But whether this is preordained or not, it doesn't feel preordained. Yeah. It feels like I can, at a minimum, not do anything I don't want to do. Yeah. So in fact, let's, hey, let's talk about the Gulag Archipelago. So we were talking about the Gulags earlier. In that book, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, everybody breaks under torture. Actually, that's not true. There are some women that will let themselves be tortured to death. And I was like, word. There, there are people who you cannot even can't, viciously can't break them. their bones, whatever. They're fine, kill me. Do whatever you want. I will never tell you whatever it is that you want to know so that you can go pick up my kids or whatever. Yeah. Okay, word. Then we have free won't. I've never heard free won't, but that's good. I like it. Strong, important concept. I would encourage people. I'm, I really want to get Sapolsky on the show. Yeah, uh, he's a fascinating guy. Dude, so interesting. I've been following him for years. Even, I, I can't fathom, I will read that book and be like, no, free will exists. Uh, long ago, I was like, oh, free will is clearly an illusion. But it has no impact on how anybody should move through the world. Yeah, that's good. I like it. That's a good distinction. Okay, so if we accept that even if free will is an illusion, yeah. you cannot act like that, and you're now being confronted with ideas that are going to be consequential in your life because so far, hopefully what we've established is you're the problem, your emotions are the reason you're the problem, 
And the way around this is to have a set of ideas that you turn into bright lines and you adhere to those bright lines because you can't trust your emotions. The only way to adhere to these bright lines is to not have your entire um, ability to live financially tied up in any investment. Mm -hmm. You're gonna need to have enough cash that you can, I would encourage people to have a year, six months to me is the absolute minimum. I agree, yeah. So how do people get to that? Because the first pushback is gonna be, yeah, dude, I don't make the kind of money you make. Right. So there's no way for me to save up a year. That's crazy. When was the first time that you started making a little bit of money? I can tell my story about how I did it. Please. And there's a lot of luck that's involved in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I was a valet all throughout college. And for <clears throat> someone who was 19, 20 years old, valet is one of the best jobs that you can possibly have. I was making, Why? I was probably making 50 grand a year as a 19 Whoa. year old. When you're 19, 50 grand, you feel like you're Bill Gates. Yeah, not bad. It's that an amazing, and it's such 90s, a fun. 90s, This was in the mid 2000s okay. uh, here in Los Angeles. And, uh, and it was such a fun job. You're outside with your buddies driving Lamborghinis. Like it was, it was the coolest job that exists. So that was some degree, I stumbled haphazardly into that. All my other friends were like servers at Denny's kind of thing, or like working, like working at the grocery store or something like that. It was serendipity that I fell into that. My parents, you know, were paying for the majority of my education, bought me my first car, were paying my health insurance, were paying my auto insurance. That allowed me to save a ton of money just from that alone. And so there's things that were outside of my control or things that were at least haphazard that I did not strategically plan and just kind of and a door that I just accidentally opened like, oh, valet is a cool job and I can make four times as much money as I do all my other peers that I didn't really do. If I'm honest about it, it was not a strategy. It was just a dumb luck kind of thing that I fell into. But, and then I mixed that with, I think I always had the money mind. It didn't need to be explained to me. I understood that I should save half my money and invest it and it was going to compound. No one, I, I, I was I was interested in it. I used to go to the bookstore and read books about investing all the time because I thought it was fascinating. It was never pushed on me, but it also just like instantly made sense. And so by the time I was in my early 20s, I'd saved up a good chunk of money that was pretty abnormal for someone of that age. But if I look back at it, it was a combination of things outside of my control. And I think a natural passion that was on the nature side of the spectrum of how I'd stumbled into it. Mm. So like when I look at it, like how, what is the advice that I can give to other people from my experience early on? And sometimes I struggle. Like what's the specific thing of like, I did X, Y, and Z. And if you do that, you can have the same result. I just, I just don't know if that's really the case. Ooh. Even, even something so simple as I was a valet in Los Angeles in the mid two thousands when money was just overflowing through the canyons in here. It was the peak subprime bubble. Everyone was a gazillionaire. Everyone, it was a very materialistic time in a very materialistic city. It was just so much money. And I know from talking to my friends who still work there, it's not like it used to be. So even the timing in which I was there, that was obviously out of my control, played a huge impact on that. So that's what, if I'm honest with myself, and I try to be humble about it looking back. It's like, look, I made some good decisions, but I don't know if it's fully replicable for other people or even for myself. I don't even know if, if I could replicate it. Here's what I tell people about my success. I, I can tell you exactly what we did down to the on day 32, turn the screw, you know, three quarters to the left. Uh, it won't work for you. And the reason it won't work is everything is about what you do and timing. 
And if you miss the timing, you've got a problem. So all the things that we did at Quest to really blow that up, uh, they won't replicate. It was about recognizing social yeah. media before anybody else. It was about building a product that didn't have sugar right at the moment where social media allowed people to share the message that sugar was the problem. I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, I didn't even do social media because I thought that I was a genius. I did social media because I thought it was a way to build an audience of people uh, that I could connect with emotionally because I was tired of being a what I called a slick marketer. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to be a slick marketer. I want to build, I didn't say community, but that's the word we'd use now. I didn't say authentic, but that's the word, that's the word we would use now. But those yeah. were all the ideas. Like, I want to go be who I really am. That's what I used to say. I want to be who I really am. And I want to build an audience of people that like feel the same as I do. I have a deep passion for storytelling. And there's this new thing. It wasn't called social media, but there's this new thing. We can create our own content. It wasn't called content. You get the idea. And so like now it's like, dude, those are table stakes yeah. to build like a terrible failing business. What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. But we did it all two years before anybody else. And yeah. so we were a rocket ship to the moon. So you're not going to get the timing right, but there really are principles. And let me see if you hate what I'm about to say, beat me to death with a verbal club. Okay, let's do it. So I had 3000 employees at the height. A thousand of them grew up hard in the inner cities. Okay. I saw that shit up close mm -hmm. and I cannot tell you that for the people, and this is where I got the 2%, for the 2% that did something with the ideas, because I created what I called Quest University. So I would come in early, I would stay late, I would teach you anything you want to know about entrepreneurship, which is really just the ability to think through problems, to improve, et cetera. And a bunch of people came, 2% did something with the idea, but the 2% that did something with the ideas, they continue to text me, call me and say, oh my God, you turn my life around, you have no idea. Some of them started their own businesses. Yeah. Some of them just became like plant managers and worked their way up a very traditional way. All of them following effectively the Flaming Hot Cheetos model, which I did not know at the time, but that guy started as a janitor and people used to clown on him because it was like, dude, why do you like do your job to that degree? Like you don't need to polish things that well, it's stupid. Yeah. And he was like, no, this has my name on it. I'm gonna do this extraordinarily well. Yeah. Now, if you do that, if everything you touch, you make better, you're going to move up in the world. It will be the rare person that says, no matter what job you give me, I'm going to excel. I'm gonna be the greatest janitor, whatever, valet of all time. You, are, Unless you're working for a sociopath, in which case leave, and go do that thing for somebody that will at least recognize selfishly the people they want to promote. Yeah. Dude, there, I have, I mean, it's the 80-20 principle here at Impact Theory. I love each and every one of them, but 20% of them are the hardest core motherfuckers I've ever met. Yeah. And these guys will kill themselves. They are smart. They are hardworking. They work long hours. Rad. They're going to get promoted, obviously, because they have such a material impact on my business. If you can make somebody else more money, you are always going to be able to move for sure. So get good at something. This is where I get crazy with people who are like, ah, oh, I was born at the wrong time, born in the wrong family. Dude, I'm poor. This is never going to work for me. Not with that attitude. And look, yeah. I get it. I grew up in a lower middle class income, which I used to think I grew up poor. And then I saw poverty and I had a huge leg up. Got it. Understood. My father-in-law grew up in a village. People wouldn't believe me if I described what his youth was like. He ate meat once a year, not because they were vegetarian, yeah. because you had one had. animal you could fucking kill. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And I was like, did I hear that right? Anyway, I've seen poverty up close. Yeah, People can't escape it. 
it's hard as hell. Yeah. You have to meet minimum requirements. I am very sad that anybody starts that far from the finish line because just to get to, or sorry, the starting line, just to get to the starting line, they have to work 10 times harder. But please, Jesus, because I love and care about you, anybody listening to this that is in that situation, you really can do it. It's gonna be hard. Again, I don't wish it on anybody, but goddamn, if people resign themselves to saying, eh, I can't do anything, then the only belief that matters, they won't do it. They won't take the first steps. Is it, <clears throat> thank you for sharing that story. Is it mutually exclusive to say that 100%, if they don't have the mindset, they're not gonna have a chance. Mm -hmm. But statistically, if you're born into certain social economic groups, the odds of you getting out are less than 10%. So statistically, more than 90% really, will not be able to do it. Is it really close to 10%? I would if, if you're less. born, it's, it's probably less. I was, I was making that number up, but it's, it's less than 10%. The inner cities destroy virtually everyone that they touch. Yes. Now so the question is So this why? is when, and I, I think we're, I think this might be a little bit of, of semantics. I think we 90% agree here, but it's hard for me to think of a formula you can give to somebody in which 90% of 99% of them are still not going to get out. Like then at, at that point, do you question whether the formula works? And I think, I, I think we both agree that the, the mindset that you can get out is table stakes for getting out is absolutely hundred percent necessary but it's not guaranteed to get you out because the odds are so heavily sticked against you. Is that right? Oh yes. I think, I think, that's, I think that's where I sometimes get tripped up. And I, I don't think we disagree, but it's just, even if you have the right mindset, it's not a formula in the sense that two plus two equals four is a formula. It's yes, very it precise. That's where we disagree. Okay. So we'll zoom in on that. If you have the right mindset and you have the intellectual horsepower, unfortunately, that's a real thing. But see, the, see that qualification right there. You it's have it's, to it's make I think it. what I'm there, getting. There's at. nothing. Dude, the army won't let you. The army, they're going to let you get shot. The army won't take you if you have less than an 83 IQ, 83 or 84. Yeah. So unfortunately there is a reality to be faced there and i caveat that only so people know that this is not a problem that i've taken a cursory glance at like i've dedicated my life to this answer yeah so seeing it up close i at first thought 100 percent of the people that you show the ideas to will change i was a fool and see i think i think that's that's the idea that i'm trying to articulate the numbers two yeah. percent so yeah. for, uh, obviously i'm making that number up but it, it is so dishearteningly low that I, here's my punchline, and Lord knows I hope I'm wrong. I gave up on adults. I realized, yeah. I went to Lisa and I said, <laughs> I'm pouring my guts out. So there, there was a breaking point. Oh, I hate this story that this is true. One of the 2% at Quest, um, I hope one day I can tell his story. It, it is one of the most extraordinary human stories ever, but unfortunately it ends with an early death due to just fucking random tragedy. Uh, but, this guy got punched in the face by his good friend because you ready? He started reading books and his friend said, you've changed. Yeah. And when he was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you read. And then he punched him. Okay. Crabs in a bucket. Yeah. Just trying to pull each other down. That's the craziest shit ever. And this was years into me doing Quest University and watching these guys like slowly climb their way up and build a mindset. And, uh, and that that broke me in some way. Because in in our circles, I think one of the coolest things that you can do and most like gaining respect is to be a big reader 
and have all kinds of knowledge yes. and wisdom. And when you contrast that with that story that you just told, it's a, it's a tough thing to swallow. Yeah. And how would I respond if that was my social circle in which I was born into? I would see, I would not be here today if that was Neither the social I. circle I was in. I would, I'm too weak. I would have been eaten. I would have been eaten alive. For Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm much more socially fragile than that. Now and, though, what do we do? Because I will not accept defeat. So my thing is I started impact theory and decided it had to be aimed at kids. I always thought I was yeah, going to make entertainment for adults. And then, I mean, obviously this show is for adults. I understand that this is my 2% thing. Long story. My audience probably heard me explain it a thousand times. But I spend 70% of my time focused on entertainment for kids because the brain from 11 to 15 it's is hypermalleable. Yeah, yeah. Post that. I, I'm not good enough. I hope there's somebody out there that is so good that they can at do putting it. the ideas together that they can do it. I'm just not that. There's guy. this quote from Kevin Kelly that I read recently. And I, I don't think this is actually a statistic. He's just making it up, but it's a great quote. He says, if you start smoking before age 25, you will never quit. Interesting. And if you don't smoke at age 25, you will never start. And I, I don't think that's actually a statistic, but I think that idea of just past a certain age, once your prefrontal cortex is fully formed, it's very like that plasticity in your brain really goes away. You see this with kids learning a new language. My parents both worked in the ER and they would talk about, there'd be sometimes a Hispanic family would come in and the five-year-old child is translating for his parents. Because a five-year-old picked up English in a year, but the parents who've been here for 20 years couldn't. Not for lack of will, just because it's much, much harder to learn a new language after oh, puberty. Oh God, now we have I to be honest. It is a lack of will. It is a lack of will. Well, here, here's, here's it another. It would be way harder for them by, by a, a factor of a hundred. I get that. But uh, it, this is- So, so I mean, could the parents learn? Yes. Thank you. But it's probably a factor of a hundred. Yes. The other amazing story I have about language is I have a, a good friend who moved with his family when I think he was 11 and his brother was 15 from Russia to the United States. Oh, I already know where this is going. My friend has no accent whatsoever, speaks English like you and I. His brother who moved here at 15, you can barely understand him. I hate that so much. And the, the demarcation line for all this is puberty. Once you've hit yeah. puberty, all that stuff becomes exponentially harder to change the wiring in your brain. Does that not enrage you? It's astounding to me that it was a four-year difference. And these are people who came from the same family with the same parents exposed to the same English at the same time, but four years apart. And they ended up 30 miles apart in terms of how they speak. And you see this a lot too of like, you'll meet someone who moved to America when they were 10 and you would never know it. You, you, they, they seem as gringo mm. as you and I. And then you can meet someone who's lived in America for 50 years. Or look at someone like Henry Kissinger, who's I think lived in America for 70 years or whatever it is. And he still has the thickest German accent. You can hardly understand what he's saying. And so, yeah, I, I, all that gets to your point of like, your brain stops accepting new ideas. Charlie Munger says your brain is like the egg where it's like, once the egg is accepted one sperm, it shuts down, no more sperm are allowed in. And he says, that's what your brain is too. Once you've accepted an idea, it's like ingrained in there. And there's a natural tendency to be like, nope, no more, I don't have room for any more ideas. I got this idea. And of course you can fight back against it. It's not black and white. It just becomes much harder as you age. Oh, you have something in your book that I'm just really going to drag us into the depths of hell. And then we are going to climb back out because I have, I have a strong conviction that, that some people can change. Yeah. And it's it, even though I say that I've given up on adults, obviously I still do the show in your book. You talk about, I can't remember which one now, but you talk about Pavlov yeah. and his dogs. Mm -hmm. Now I didn't know about the flood. Yeah. Tell me more. 
So <clears throat> Pavlov's dogs is, are very well known for, they would drool on command. And what he did is he taught the dogs that when I ring the bell, food is coming. And when a dog knows food is coming, they drool. So what Pavlov, this psychologist, got his dogs to do is whenever I ring the bell, the dog starts drooling. And he could command the dog to drool. It's this neat little study. And a part of the study that was really left out was that, uh, this was in Leningrad, <clears throat> Russia. There was this massive, massive flood. And a lot of Pavlov's dogs were wrapped up in the flood and the water came all the way up to the cages. He had to put the dogs on top of the cages and like push them across the river. They went through this incredible trauma. And Pavlov wrote about after the trauma and the ridiculous stress that the dogs have been through, they lost some of that learned behavior that had been so ingrained in them. Like deep stress rewires your brain. Deep stress leaves a scar on you. And I wrote this in the book as an example, like people who have been through the Great Depression, World War II, the Holocaust, name like the deep, deep scars. That will rewire your brain and you are not the same person coming out of that. And one of the things I think is so interesting at the end of World War II is that we really did not understand PTSD at all. It was not, uh, we didn't understand much about it. And there were so many veterans who came home from World War II and became raging alcoholics or very depressed or just completely different person because the war fundamentally re rewired their brain. They were Pavlov's dogs that once you experience that, something that is ingrained in you before you experience it is gone. It's at, it's out of you. So that's another thing that I think about of like, I have my own values and views of the world today, but if I went through something utterly traumatic like that, would it against my will, against my my wanting it to happen, would I just be a fundamentally different person? Would I turn violent? Would I turn angry? Would I turn depressed? Whatever it would be. And this gets back to, I think I'm almost 40 years old and I think I understand this thing between my head. I understand who I am and how I think, but any of us could go through an experience, whether it's losing a loved one or going through even just a bad recession that rewires who you are. It's yeah. scary to think about. Yeah, that's why I said I'm going to take us into the depths of hell here. Let's do it. Because, well, I mean, that that to me is about as traumatic as it gets. So uh, free will is an illusion. Uh, once your brain accepts that initial set of ideas, I won't say it's a single idea, but what I call frame of reference. So to me, frame of reference is the sperm. And once you have a frame of reference, you don't even realize it. You yeah. don't realize that the egg of your brain has been fertilized and that's it. That's it. And most people are never able to... Uh, let's stretch the metaphor, retill that soil uh, so no, that it good. can, yeah. you know, take a new crop, uh, as it were, just to really be all over the place. Um, it's terrifying. And the yeah. only thing that makes it worse is that inevitably you will go through something traumatic and that yeah. will make it worse. Yeah. And it will further break you and you will be further in a hole. And this is why a grown man can punch one of his best friends in the face because he started reading and he doesn't understand that it's a rejection of the new and that you're making me feel judged and inferior. He has no sense of that. He just feels like his friend deserves to be punched in the face. He trusts his emotion and he throws the punch. Yeah. And that's why most people will die broke. Now, I think if there is a positive spin on it, and maybe this is you pulling us out of the depths of hell, it's that the trauma is going to change you. It could change you in a positive way. It could. I mean, I think for a lot of people, hitting rock bottom is exactly what they need. And if they have a job loss it's, or a, uh, they their relationship falls apart, in the moment, it seems like the worst thing that could ever happen to them. But in hindsight, 
a year or 10 years later, they realize there was no better event in their life. It's exactly what they needed at that moment. And the stress from that fundamentally changed them, maybe in a good way. Maybe it was an entrepreneur who was way too cocky and then lost everything. And then the experience of that made for their next venture. They're going to make new mistakes, but they're not, they're not going to make that mistake. So maybe that's the positive spin on it. Like Pavlov's dog stopped drooling. Okay, maybe that wasn't that bad of an idea. I think there are people who came out of the Great Depression, let's say, better for it. They had learned a very valuable lesson. That was the right lesson to learn. And they were smarter for it. Now there's a lot of people who became utterly traumatized from it in a negative way. But I do think there are some people who take those terrible events with some stride. And I think dealing with COVID, for example, regardless of what your views on COVID were, every single person understands viral illness better than they did in 2019. Regardless of you think what you think should have happened or did happen, um, we, we all understand it in a more fundamental way than we did in 2019. So as traumatic as it was for virtually everybody, we're all smarter now because of it. And we all understand something that we did not in 2019. And that, that's a positive spin on the trauma that we, that we went through.